Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's guest on the Sustainability and You podcast is Sean Kidney. Sean is the CEO of the Climate Bond Initiative, an international NGO working to mobilise global capital for climate action. Working with climate bond partners in the investment and banking community in 30 countries around the world, the Climate Bond Initiative aims to reduce market friction and improve risk differentiation for green investments. That involves advocacy around standards, issuer support for bond market development, and policy interventions that promote green finance solutions. Welcome, Sean Kidney, to the Sustainability and You podcast. You're joining us today from sunny Australia. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's our great pleasure. Sean, we thought we'd kick off with just a little bit of background on you, if we may. We'd love to hear about your story of the founding of the Climate Bond Initiative. Well, if you really want that kind of ancient history, I'm what they call a serial serial entrepreneur, serial Mm. social entrepreneur. But after years of running businesses, names like Social Change Online and so on, uh, and doing advisory work for others, I got fed up and I was a bit bored. And then when I was about 50, a couple of big things happened to me. One of my businesses, a publishing business, went under, which dragged me down. I was paying off debts for a while. That was, that was really tough. You know, it, break, it shakes your confidence, right? One. Two, my father died, and he was dying in New Zealand, and he took a month to die at the end. I, I, I flew over for a weekend thinking I'd, be, I'd have to you know, do the funeral and then come back, but in fact, it took a long time. And I grabbed some books off the shelf just in case because I was going to a different country. And uh, I took the books, of the one of the books I took was the Proceedings of the Exeter University Conference on Catastrophic Climate Change. A bit of a light read, you know, just in case those days, which was chaired by Tony Blair. And uh, in the quiet time, because he was asleep a lot of the time, he was dying of cancer, I read it. And I have to say, at the end of every chapter, I had to stop. I had to read it again. And then I went, fuck, excuse the language, because it's terrifying. <laughs> the, the science literature is so dry mm. in style, but when you read what they're actually saying, we're talking about risk of species extinction. And I don't mean bugs in Germany. I mean us. There's the risk of extinction of us. And you're thinking, how come this isn't the only thing anyone on the whole planet talks about? So that freaked me out and made me start to think about what I should do. And then I went back to Australia after he died and the funeral and so on and 
two weeks after I had a stroke. I found myself in hospital for a week. And, you know, when you have a stroke at the age of 50, it kind of makes you think, mm, uh-oh, I could go any minute. I guess I better finally get a man to do whatever it is I want to do. <laughs> and, and in my case, that wasn't going by a red sports car. That was decide to devote the rest of my life to working in climate change. Incredible story. Wow. I wasn't expecting that. You said it was going to be dramatic and it was, you exceeded <laughs> my expectations there. Well, that, that gave me a bit of, a bit of oomph. And then I spent a couple of years thinking about, well, because like, in my profession, I've been social change strategy, advising governments, like what to do. And that, and I'd had done a lot of work with investors in Australia where these businesses are being run. And I just had this theory that the long-term capital of is leading to a change the way we construct and manage our societies, or at least there's an opportunity to make it work that way. But it would require turning pension funds and insurance funds, the larger ones, not so many in the UK, I have to say, it's the insurance funds, pension funds are smaller here, but in other countries, into forces for action. Because if the world wasn't going to be working well in 20 years' time, they would not be able to pay your pensions and my pensions. Simple. and. That became the underlying thesis of what we're doing in Copenhagen at the COP in 2009 after writing a strategy paper we put out there for comments and got positive yet for, decided, damn it, let's just launch this bloody thing. And here we go, 11 years, 12 years later, we have a $1.1 trillion green bond market, $1.1 trillion. <laughs> it should be a trillion dollars a year, unfortunately. So we haven't actually been as successful as we want it to be, but it sounds good. And we'd, we'd all like the issuance of green bonds to be a much more significant part of that. And of course, your initiative has played a massive part in raising the profile of, of green bonds. But we're seeing now real interest in the green bond market, and there's a huge amount of diversification within it, um, extending into social and sustainability bonds and different types of green bond. Can you share your experience of the evolution of this market and, and where you see it going? You know, this is a very simple idea, right? This is just, if you can issue a bond, why not tell people how they're going to use the money and report on it? And those people who really like you to use the money in some way or another like those long-term investors concerned about long-term risk of climate change, can choose your bonds. That's all it is. Nothing more complicated. And on the basis of that very simple idea, we've seen a rapid growth in first green bond market and now the daughters of the green bond market that use the same approach, what's called a use of proceeds model, social bonds, sustainable bonds, transition bonds, blue bonds even. Um, and pandemic bonds, we saw some last year. So it's a, it's a simple idea. It marries two things. The idea that you can get a good return, but also have your money do good while it's giving you a return. Doing good by doing well, which in some ways should be simple, right? It has grown out of the whole ESG, environmental social governance model, which started off looking at equities and looking at more complicated tracking indicators to try and assess what would be investments that would turn a, a better return in the future on the theory that if you if people were being sensible and responsible, they are likely to get a better return. And the cowboys are risky. They might give you a short-term return, but in three years' time, they're going to blow up. Over the last 30 years, that's held up. 
now ESG indicators do tend to get tend to get a better return than, or, or I should say, funds that are indices that use ESG indicators get a better return than others. Now, it's not always. There is plenty of circumstances where if you invest in a landmine manufacturer, it'll make you more money over the next few years than someone else. But then that raises some moral dimension to some of this as well. And, you know, we saw in the Netherlands a few years ago a campaign by ordinary citizens to insist that their pension funds divest from landmine manufacturing, and it was successful. And that started off the red line movement. But there are some things you just shouldn't invest in on ethical grounds, not because it was a lower return. (laughs) And now we've got a slightly different sensibility appearing in the climate investments, which grew out of better returns if you invest in a company that is concerned about labour rights, you'll get a better return, to now thinking, actually, you know what, there are some things we just shouldn't do. You've seen that in a more aggressive version in divestment. I need to be careful here. While my own my small pension pot is in a fund that doesn't invest in any fossil fuels, it's an ethical fund, I don't necessarily think that the large funds should divest. I think the large funds should engage and seek to turn the corporate strategy of the organisations that have the holdings that need to change. And that's a more productive and powerful thing to do. It's a very powerful point, isn't it, that when we look at universal investors and the need to support the energy transition and the different initiatives that are evolving to do that. In fact, you know, your initiatives are reflecting that in part with the transition pathway initiative and and transition bonds or, or the more accurate labelling of where issuers are on the pathway to net zero. What's the response, I suppose, to that um, initiative? Because I would have thought it's a very positive one because it will engage a much wider audience of participants. So it's important to note that we're not talking about people taking a haircut for investing in green. That's important to note. There's no reason you should because a company should be able to invest in green and make money, and that's even more the case now. So in the past... It was always, let's look at comparable investments that are green and then switch them if they're comparable. And that's how we started green bonds. And it grew and grew and grew along those lines. We've now got to a stage over the last two years where the level of commitment by different governments around the world, and I'm forgetting about the UNFCCC process, the climate change agreement process, which hasn't led to significant change, unfortunately, but by government action is very significant. And Investors now think this change is going to happen. We now have 112 countries around the world that have committed the net zero 2050 targets. We have China having committed to 2030 peaking. We have the US and Europe committing to 55 or 50% cuts in emissions by 2030, which is exactly what the IPCC recommends. And Japan, a leak last week, said it's going to commit as well. So in that context, for an investor, the risk quotient has changed. In the old days, when we started 10 years ago, investors would say, oh, well, solar, it's really risky. It's very volatile, isn't it? How do I make money out of that? And if they were investing in companies, they were right. If they're investing in solar plants or wind plants that had a power purchase agreement, they were wrong. Because actually, it's the power purchase agreement that was worth the money, but it doesn't matter. Nowadays, it's changed a lot. When we talk about what we call a taxonomy of green investments, that is the investments that qualify to be called 
consistent with achieving the Paris Agreement. We now have investors saying to us, oh, they're lower risk, aren't they? Because they're not going to be hit by policy change. Whereas everything else, we just don't know. We don't know. All we know is everything's going to change. Governments are going to change, which is great. A friend of mine, Sunny Kapoor, puts it this way. He says that we've now won the argument about the shape of the future. It's merely a discussion about the speed to which we get there. And that is a major change in the last two years. I don't find any, no, you do find people, but don't don't find any sensible people, (laughs) if you like, that that don't think we're going to have a clean, green society. It's just that some people think it's going to take 60 years and some people think it's got to be done in 10 years, like the IPCC. And that's really what we're talking about now. And how much, I mean, there is this sort of, you call it criticism, if you like, that the that green bonds aren't offering additionality. The issue is that are issuing bonds under that remit would have raised debt in any event. I suppose with the introduction of the transition bond that is opening the class up to a more diverse base of issuer. You know how markets work, Josephine. You don't only buy beds that are freshly made. You also buy beds that have been made before. You buy it on eBay or a gum tree or whatever. A secondary market of existing assets builds the foundation for new products to be able to sell into it. That's especially the case when it comes to infrastructure. A solar farm is no less green because it was built two years ago. It's still a solar farm. The more we have financing and refinancing and the more we have an industry which focuses on this carved-out slice of society and economy, which is what is necessary for the future, and the bigger it is, the more we will have it change quickly. And one of my friends, Michael Sheer on the Bank of England, talks about the incredible importance of refinancing. In, if you look at the capital stack, you financing of projects is done by equity and bank lending. It's not done by bonds. But however, the speed of that equity and bank lending can be revolved or recycled into new projects is dependent on their ability to refinance mm-hmm. in the bond market. <laughs> That's the point of the bond markets. The whole point of it is to refinance assets, and that sucks in more projects. And in fact, if you can exit your investment as an investor, as an equity investor, faster. Well, in the old days, it would have taken you 10 years in a solar farm to exit. Now you can invest in tw- exit in 12 months. That essentially means you can do 10 times as many projects with the same amount of equity. And that's what we're doing with bonds. That's the whole point of the bond market. There are other reasons too. I need to say something. I need to let you into a bit of a secret about bonds and green bonds and climate bonds. It's not the purpose of what we're trying to do here. What we're actually trying to do, this is it's a means to an end. What we're actually trying to do is to, is to do two things. One is to show that we can make money out of green. You know, when I started this in 10 years ago, there was no one in the finance sector that thought there was any way you'd make money out of green. And the whole conversation for the first five years dominated, oh, you're going to have to take a haircut because it's green. You're going to make less money. And now it's the reverse. Because we've got a market going, We've proven to the bankers, to the investors, actually you can make your portfolio green. And I've got debt capital market heads at global banks who say to me, hey, Sean, now that we've got deal flow, management is now giving us more people and more staff and they're allowing us to hunt. And, you know, my real purpose on that particular objective, my real purpose was, as I described it in a a forum at Bloomberg a few years ago, to let loose a thundering herd of elephants 
on the plains of finance. I want a thundering herd of green elephants looking for deals, shaking up the ground. And we've done it. Yeah. Now we have it. There are banks all over the world with green teams. But there's a second objective. And the second objective is actually to get enough people involved in this that they will press, pressure, force governments to act. We do not make the shift that we need to shift and the time we need to shift without extremely strong and powerful state action. It's not possible. We've got 10 years to cut global emissions by more than half to even have just a reasonable chance of a future for Tilly. I'll be gone. And that's the challenge. And we only do that if governments do a whole lot of things, change the fabric of infrastructure planning, change zoning. There should be no more buildings built that aren't zero carbon. For God's sake, ban the things, like that landmine story I mentioned in the Netherlands. These are, these are ethical, moral, but they're also risk issues because if you don't, you are consigning your financial system, your economic system, to a world of catastrophic volatility to pick up that title of that Exeter conference book I read all those years ago. It is catastrophic where we're going right now. And we're still on that path, by the way. We haven't got off it yet. It's looking good, but it's not there yet. Now, catastrophic is a world of multiple metres of sea level rising, heats and wildfires around the world, but it's also a world of wars, of imploded economies and of pandemics. This pandemic, this has been predicted by the International Panel, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Health Committee for 30 years. Yeah. They've been saying when, when temperatures change, you get pathogens jumping between species, you get degraded, well, bat colonies in this case, and pandemics occur as it has throughout human history. And we're going to have a lot of them. I mean, even, even if we stop catastrophic climate change, we're going to have a lot of them. If we don't stop catastrophic, that's where the extinction of species stuff starts becoming viable, you know. So it's going to be a very jagged line going forward. Mm-hmm. And we're in a race to try and make it not too jagged that we can't survive. That's what it boils down to. A strong state action. And now I've got investors who are telling me, look, if you can organise us to go to governments to tell them what to do, we're in. This is unheard of. This is this year only, like it's since January. This has started happening as part of the Building Back Better. And that's exactly what we were trying to do. That was the real objective, not creating a market. Yeah, and and, and it raises some really interesting points around dialogue. You know, the, the narrow focus is to look at the cost of capital and the diversification of risk. But there's a much bigger point here, as you say, about getting everybody talking about the integration of sustainability issues and opportunities within the organization, whether it's an asset manager, owner, or corporate looking to make a change. And you've talked about shareholder action as well, how that's influencing the direction and flow of capitals or divestment initiatives. In terms of the uh, that bigger picture view of the allocations of sort of capital, you said that you were talking to investors and funds what changes are you seeing at senior decision-maker level that gives you hope? Well, the first change is the very substantive engagement on the part of fund managers, asset owners first, by the way, who then tell fund managers what to do. 
around green investments, which is now leaking into other areas, leaking into increased ambition. What more can we do to reduce this forward risk and shift our assets and make money while we're at it to other kinds of asset classes like equities and so on Mm -hmm. and to other kinds of actions? How can we band it together to pressure governments? This is the Climate Action 100 Plus, the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance Mm -hmm. and various other alliances that have appeared in the last two years, which are great. And we have our own collection of climate bonds partners that are investors representing, I think, about $30 trillion under management. And they're keen to act. Now, some of them are late to the party, you know, and they've come to the party because the asset owners, their clients, have said, can't you do something? And that's why BlackRock has come to the party, mm-hmm. not because of a, they saw light at the road, on, on the road to Damascus, but because their clients asked, which is great. Mm-hmm. And now... BlackRock is doing some very interesting. In fact, I've just appointed a friend of mine, Paul Botnow, as head of sustainability and climate change. It's the big, you know, this is this is the largest fund manager in the world. So, and State Street Global are doing some fantastic work. They're launching a, well, not supposed to say, they're launching all sorts of new products <laughs> coming up soon. So we're seeing significant engagement on the investor side. Yeah. I said, a friend of mine from, the, from a central bank phoned me up recently and said, if we had as many green bonds as we wanted, because there's a supply problem, how many could we place? And I said, well, look, the current market's about 1.1 trillion outstanding. We could place 10 trillion next week. That's how how deep the demand is right now. I have no doubt we could place 10 trillion. And that's pretty exciting, right? That, you know, the global bond market is 100 trillion to give you a sense of scale. So step one. Step two, we do have this really significant build back better campaign out of the pandemic and an appreciation that there's a risk of more of these happening, which is beginning to suffuse policymakers, helped by some electoral changes in some countries. You know, one of Biden's campaign slogans was build back better, which I first heard being spoken by the managing director of the IMF in February last year. And it's and it's also been a campaign slogan of the of the European Commission. You know, we have now pretty exciting sense of government interest. Now, they don't know how to do it yet. Well, there's lots of talk of increasing sovereign bonds, aren't there? And Sovereign bond issues part of it. The UK government's committed to 15 billion sterling out this year of green bonds before the COP, which is a fantastic program. But they're not the only ones. The European Commission has committed to 225 billion euros over the next two years of green bonds. So this particular market is, is going gangbusters. And as you say, Germany has already got a big program and they proved the price benefit. So when I talk about the reasons we're doing this, I I told you my big headline reasons, but we are also trying to make a preferential market for capital as part of it on the journey. And we're working on that. In euros and US dollars and some other currencies, green bonds have a lower price. That is a better price than other bonds. And the German Bund, green bond, was, was the proof of that because they issued a negative interest rate bond on the same day as another bond, and the German green bond was one basis points tighter pricing, even at negative interest rates. Can't believe it. And in the secondary market, it's traveling at four to eight basis points better pricing. And that is the lowest interest rate bond in the universe. It's the best way to put it. So, and then other people are getting 20 basis points and 30 basis points. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot if you're trying to borrow money from your for a house. But if you're issuing a half a billion dollar bond or a billion dollar bond, it's a lot. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and um, But you know what? 
those, in, those investors that are getting the benefit of price aren't doing it for the money. They're telling me this. They're doing it because of the relationship with those investors. Remember those long-term investors I spoke about, which is the whole strategy of what we're doing? Those long-term investors are saying to them, we love what you're doing at the green. Can you do more of it? And that, that leaches over into equities, share price. When you issue a green bond in Europe as a company, your share price goes up and stays up. And that's the gold dust. And it's a linking between investor demand for a different kind of future and what companies are doing. Again, it's the holistic view and benefit, isn't it, that, that you're alluding to there. I guess in terms of reputational risk, there has been some commentary around some issuers being a bit nervous about entering the green bond market because of mixed profile. That you know they may have a historic brown background, like an oil company. Yeah, and then the risk of greenwashing. So. What can you say about that and what, what changes are you seeing then? And again, I'm sure the transition pathway to bond issuances will help with that. So, so we are up in the ante. I mean, my, the first thing I want to say is if a company is building a solar farm, it's still a solar farm. And I use a solar farm as a metaphor for all the things that are green, right? There's mm-hmm. manufacturing investments, agriculture investments, forestry, um, transport. There's a, there's a wide range of things. But, you know, if you're doing something green, it's still something green. If you're doing something green where you're inadvertently or intentionally doing harm with that green, okay, that's a bit of a problem. So, for example, building a solar farm in a wetland, oh, don't like the idea. Building a railway line, low-carbon transport, to a coal mine, uh-uh, hang on a tick. You're going to carry more coal? That's not right. <laughs> so let's call this do no significant harm issues, mm-hmm. which have enshrined in the European taxonomy work that I've been doing for so long. Uh, for years now, which is part of the European Commission's work, as a way of protecting against inadvertent harm. However, if you're an oil company and you build a solar farm, isn't that a good thing? And in fact, I want that oil company to build more solar farms. So I want to support them building a solar farm. But it's a bit like, you know, my kids tell me all the time that I do some really stupid things or say bad things, but they love me and they give me a cuddle and then every so often they essentially kick me. And that's exactly what happen, What we need to do with oil companies. We need to give them a bouquet when they do something good and whack them in the shins when they do something bad. And that applies to all of us. No one's perfect. Well, mm-hmm. Probably are a few people perfect, but I'm certainly not. And, and that's the essence of change, improving the behaviours that are good and trying to diminish the behaviours that are bad. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we need to get really tough on this. Like it's more than just saying if you're a green bond, we'll accept it, but that is part of it. Mm-hmm. I want some shareholder active action. I'm keen, and we're seeing this now. With This is what happened with BP and Shell last year where they came to market with 2050 net zero commitments without arguing the toss about what they're like at the moment under the because of shareholder activism. Yeah. So there's a lot of things we can do, but the trouble is with these big, large companies, we can't afford them to go bust for a lot of reasons. They, got, they employ a lot of people. And you know what? There's another reason. They own a lot of crap that's left out there that's got to be cleaned up. They go bust, it's going to be us that's cleaning it up. All those oil rigs in the North Sea, they've got to be demopped, deconstructed. So I need Shell to still be making money in 10 years' time so we can have enough cash to pull apart those rigs. So there's a lot of reasons why we need a transition. So let's call it a transition. And what we proposed is three kinds of transition finance or transition bonds. The first kind is if an oil company does something good, then let's say, yes, you can call that the financing of that green. 
with some monitoring and reporting. You know, there are some rules you have to do to make sure and get independent review, et cetera, et cetera. Second, if you're transitioning an industry and you're doing a stepping stone investment, which is obviously green, but in the context of understanding where that industry's got to go, ah, that makes sense. Give you an example. We allowed in the EU taxonomy the retrofitting of gas pipelines to make them hydrogen ready. Now, hang on, why is that? Well, the reason is we believe in 2030, we're going to need a lot of hydrogen generated by renewable energy. It's called green hydrogen in the system, not necessarily for electricity generation, but certainly for transports, long distance transport. There are already trains in Italy and Germany being switched over from diesel to hydrogen right now. And for manufacturing, for cement and for steel and a bunch of other things. So that's what we call a stepping stone investment. It's something you can do now that will have impact in the next five or 10 years. And every industry's got those things. And then thirdly, we want entities planned. So if you're doing a corporate strategy like Shell and BP, which is to get you in the Paris Agreement aligned direction quickly, then we want to call that a transition. But we want to be really confident about the transition. So let's have a look at that. Mm. What's involved in doing that? Well, I'm going to give you some basic rules. According to the IPCC report of 2018 and the IEA report on the 1.5 degree modelling they did, there can be no new fossil fuel investments to meet the Paris Agreement. There you go. There's a red line. If you've got a corporate strategy, it's not, not going to be working if you've got new fossil fuel investments. But that doesn't mean you can't have fossil fuel investments that you're sweating and slowly reducing the emissions from. That's okay. We can live off that. Let's talk about what the future projects are, renewable energy or green buildings, that matter, or transport. And that becomes a framework we need to understand transition plans. So we're working on that at the moment. And later this year, we'll make some announcements along those lines. And I think I see it as a real positive that it is forcing a greater articulations of corporate strategies around their sustainability and transition plans, not least dialogue, but it is forcing a much more granular articulation of those strategies. How do you strike the balance between creating the flexibility that organisations need to transition and meeting the eligibility criteria within their taxonomy? Look, it's, it's, well, in the, in the taxonomy, we've got a whole chapter on transitions and about how we do it. And we've set sort of moving goalposts in many areas that get tougher and tougher to give some guidance uh, out of this. Uh, but when we look at the corporate strategy, the key thing is we need a science basis to the nature of the ambition. Is it consistent with what the trajectories are? Like I've just been mm. working on the climate count or rather supporting the Australian Climate Council's release of their annual report, which is like the Climate Committee in, in England, except the government's defunded them here because <laughs> they've got a lunatic government. And they're talking about trajectories for the next 10 years. Mm. They think Australia needs to achieve a 75% cut of ambitions in 10 years. Mm. So there you go. There's a benchmark. So if you could do a corporate strategy, which is consistent with these science-based trajectories, then I think you're in. Now, there's work to be done. And we're working with the Transition Pathways Initiative and other bodies that you've mentioned before to try and get a, a combined view about what this needs to look like. And a, we want to do a granular view. It's not impossible to do. In the steel industry, we know. If you're working on a steel transition plan, which gets you to net zero carbon steel by 2050, sounds good, but it includes about 20 years of having gas instead of green hydrogen 
to replace Coke. That doesn't sound right, thinking back to the IPCC plan. Let me look at another company. If I look at another company, and there are a couple around, like SSAB and um, SASB in, mm. in Scandinavia, that are going straight to green hydrogen to replace Coke, whoa, that looks good. That's a 10-year strategy. Bingo, we've got a plan. And that's the kind of discourse you need to have around bridges, which is challenging for companies because they've never been told this before. They've always been working on what I'd call political economy charged plans, which is the national climate change plans, which have always been the climate, the Ministry of Climate Change saying, this is what we've got to do, this is what we've got to do. The um, Ministry of Finance says, hmm, sounds good. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. But that looks very hard. What about we just do this? And that becomes a climate change plan. And that is a problem because it is patently not strong enough, which is why we have a problem with climate change after talking about it in IPC and the UN agreements, I should say, for 30 years. So you sort of get where this direction is going. There's a phrase you will hear all the time, science-based, 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 not policy-based. The science is moving quite fast, though. And it will continue to move. So the other phrase you'll hear is dynamic, a word, I should say. It needs to be subject to ongoing review. If we find we were totally wrong about atmospheric carbon absorption of the oceans, and it's worse than we thought, we'll have to revisit in three years. You've got to do that, and it'll change your policy. The key thing is we're listening to the science. You know, we spent This is the one learning out of the pandemic, isn't it? There's one thing we've learned. Well, I'm not sure if we've learned it in the UK and the US yet, but anyway, one thing we've learned is that you listen to the scientists and you act fast with what they say. If they say you need to have a lockdown on Tuesday, do it on Tuesday. Don't take three more weeks to decide because then you'll have a couple hundred thousand people dying, which is kind of what we've seen if we take the excess mortality figures in the UK as distinct from the official mortality figures. It it raises a a very interesting point about the skill sets for the future, and I couldn't agree more that a dynamic skill set for the future is required. Tilly and I often have this discussion around what does good leadership look like? And what should the leaders of tomorrow look like? And how should they think about the, the development of their skill sets? Tilly, we, we, we often engage on that, don't we? Do yeah. you we have some thoughts around yourself, what you've heard here and the, the, the skill sets you may need to be an effective leader for the future? I think something that I have found listening to you is that a lot of the dialogue surrounding bonds is very technical. And I think coupled with the fact that the issuance of bonds is made at such a senior level and also the fact that the the language surrounding it is so technical I think it's it's hard for the younger boys to get involved and so I think it I'd be interested actually to hear your thoughts on how the younger generation is able to understand and be more connected to this sort of area so that we can kind of embody that leadership at an earlier stage so that we can continue with this progression that you're talking about, which is so fascinating and so dynamic, as you said. I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. Well, there's some technical skills answers, I guess, around strategy and how we achieve things. But I would say, fundamentally, we are still working out the Enlightenment Mm. We are still working out the balance between rational thought and non-rational thought, if you like. And it is a balance we need, right? It's not one side or another. It is, it's actually not entirely possible 
to distill rationality because it doesn't give us energy the way it works and something. But I, I would say that that discourse between understanding the world and then acting is the essence of what we're talking about, aligned with a second discourse, which is responsibility for the planet we live in. So the thing I talk to young people a lot about is what this is really about. This is really about the species growing up. This is really about converting from a juvenile species to an adult species. We have been acting like, well, when I was, when I was a, an adolescent male, I wrecked a few things. I can remember wrecking a forest at one point in my enthusiasm, wild testosterone. <laughs> and, and I look back still with shame all these years later. And I think that's what the species is like. Doing stuff because of a burst of energy, because it can, because it's discovered adulthood bodily form, but hasn't discovered adult consciousness. We as a species have to accept that we are now in the Anthropocene, that we are now managing this planet. When only is it three or six percent of biomass in the planet is wild biomass, in terms of mammal biomass, and the rest is humans or domesticated animals, you've got to accept facts, right? We're managing this place nowadays. So we've got to get serious about it and responsibly manage. And that's what this is all about. If the species grows up to be able to responsibly manage the world we're in and use science and our emotional energy as well, we need the balance to do too, to properly manage, we have a future. The planet has a future. Gaia, as the author James Lovelock called it, has a future. If we don't do that, we will go. We will be shrugged off by Gaia like ticks <laughs> and someone else, maybe the cockroaches, will take our place and become intelligent in due course. That's what I think this is really about. Sean, um, on, on that note, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. You're a breath of fresh air. Um, <laughs> and I, I look forward to, to continuing to grow up with you <laughs> on this journey as we green the, green the planet. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of speaking.